Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and I'm going to keep the intro very tight today. I'm going to keep it tight. I've said I, I normally say I'm going to keep it tight, but today I'm going to keep it tight. Kurt Fernley. Kurt Fernley is back. He was on episode 11 of Philosophy back in the day, one of the first people who came to my house and did an episode with me and uh, it is brilliant to catch up with him for episode I don't know, 150 odd. I haven't counted, but it's something like that these days. So it's a very different time in Kurt's life. And it was great to check back in uh, to see his reflections on what had happened in between and where he was now in his life. And he's always just one of the best people to talk to, Kurt. He is an absolute sporting legend. He's a three-time Paralympic gold medalist, two-time Commonwealth gold medalist, and of course uh, won the gold medal at the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast, which was probably the highlight of those entire Commonwealth Games. He's won over 30 marathons in his life, including the New York, Chicago and London Marathon. He's an incredible disability advocate. He's doing incredible work in the community. He's hilarious and interesting and wonderful. Anyway, uh, you know, you won't find a bigger fan of Kurt Fernley than me, and I'm so pleased to have the great man back on uh, my podcast. But check out his, Tiny Island. It's an absolute cracker. So uh, speaking of websites, you can go to patreon.com slash philosophy and support this uh, little podcast. Um, The fact that it's coming out often twice a week at the moment is a bit of an experiment for what we are aiming to do if we can hit the $5,000 a month mark on the Patreon, which we are going towards. Thank you to everybody who in these hard times has found a little bit of money and has joined up uh, to support this show. If we can get it up to the $5,000 mark, we've budgeted that we can pay Podcast Mike who puts out these episodes for me and James Fosdyke to do all the original art and we can go with uh, two Two a week, and our aim is if we get to that 5,000, we'll do one original episode a week and one repeat guest, one check-in with a former guest of the podcast per week. So you can do that by going to patreon.com slash philosophy, and thank you to all the people who message me there. I read, I'm trying not to read social media at the moment just for mental health reasons, um, you know, trying not to check in too much on, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all those sort of things, but I am Uh, trying to read all the messages that come to the Patreon page. And there's been some incredible ones, people sharing their stories, their insights. And of course, um, incredibly as well, uh, people suggesting really cool guests for the podcast. So I've got a really good list of people. Um, I always love when somebody's like, oh, this person is from my area of the world and they're a brilliant speaker and they've got an incredible story and follow them on Twitter or, you know, look up their website and have a look and see if they would be a good guest for the podcast. So I'm making a really good list of people from the Patreon suggestions as well. So keep them coming. Speaking of the podcast, uh, the ASRC, the the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, an incredible organisation that do work for asylum seekers in our community in Australia. And I auctioned off an opportunity to appear as a guest on this podcast. And uh, somebody, an anonymous person, I haven't found out who they are yet, bid uh, $6,550 for that. So thank you to that incredibly generous person, $6,550 going to help asylum seekers and the incredible work that the ASRC do in our community. So thank you so much for that. And thank you to those who bid and supported. And I know it got it very quickly got to an amount of money that most people could not afford. But uh, the fact that somebody came in and bid so much money uh, to appear on this podcast, I look forward to finding out who it was. And I look forward to recording that interview and sharing it with you all as well sometime in the future. Um, that's it. See, I told you I was going to keep it short. I'm going to keep it under four minutes. So uh, I hope you enjoy this one with Kurt. If you do, let him know and uh, let me know via the Patreon as well. And enjoy this episode. This is Kurt.
Hello and welcome to Velocity with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Here's something I've been doing during this quarantine period. One of the only rules I have with this podcast, and people, you might be a new listener to the show. Welcome if you are. Thanks for uh, listening in. Thanks for finding the podcast. Thanks for whoever shared it with you in the first place. That meant that you found it uh, this late into the game. We're somewhere in the episode 150s. I don't know the exact number that we've done, but I think we're in the 150s at the moment. But I started this show six, seven years ago, and I didn't really know what it was back then. What I really did was I just thought, you know what? I've got a bunch of interesting friends that I would like to talk to, and I'll start with just talking to some of my interesting friends. And during this quarantine period, when I can't be face-to-face in a room with somebody uh, to do one of these shows, what I've been doing is revisiting previous guests on the show. This one... This is very exciting today because this is like getting in a time machine. I did a little Google because I knew you were one of the early episodes, but I did a little Google of my timeline to find out when it was that we actually recorded our episode with today's guest. And it was uh, it was over five years ago, five and a half years ago, we had a chat. It was episode 11 of what has become uh, this philosophy show. And I am very pleased uh, to have my friend uh, back on the show today. Uh, this is how the show starts. I, I don't even know if it's... I think it's how it started back then as well. I'm not even really sure it was so long ago. But I ask my guest who they are. So who are you? Uh, I'm, I'm Kurt Fernley. Has been... Um, has been. That'll do. <laughs> Used to... <laughs> Used used to race wheelchairs. Now now uh, now figuring it out. I mean, it is actually quite interesting that we speak so far apart because I know that you're joking, uh, but <laughs> but I guess last time we spoke, you know, in some ways you were the, at the peak of your athletic powers. Perhaps you know, like with an eye on when it was all going to finish up, you know. But you'd established your fame and legend, and you know, built your career, and we spoke about all those things. And now I'm catching up with a bloody has been. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When we when we chatted last time, it was twenty uh, twenty fourteen, the end of twenty fourteen, I think, maybe the start of twenty fifteen. Yeah. So you were mm-hmm. in between cycles, and I was just ramping up for uh, my final Paralympics. So I was in the zone, and it's funny because that next eighteen months was the last period of time that the that the hunger was almost undisputed like I, there was no other conflict in me that's what I wanted to do I was a wheelchair racer um, and then I would make it through to Rio and in the final 200 meters of the Rio games something clicked and it said that you don't need this anymore and once that's done, it's done. Um, but I would race for another two years after that. But really, I know the exact moment. It was maybe even 150 metres to go. But it was, uh, I was, I was leading right up until then. A competitor would start to go by me. And for the very first time, my head just said, you don't need this. And yeah. Uh, so, so since then, I've been slowly working into my comfort levels of being Kurt Fernley has been. So, Kurt Fernley has been. It's, it's so lovely to see you. Um, you're drinking 
a tiny coffee. Can we talk about that before we get to the other stuff? What is this tiny coffee that you are drinking on screen? It's almost like you have stolen like a teacup from your child's like playset to drink a coffee in this morning. Look, I think that it's uh, because you're looking at me through a screen and I have two, two things, giant hands and a giant head. <laughs> so... <laughs> So the proportions, the proportions are all out of whack for you. But I, I am an I am an espresso uh, an espresso drinker, and I uh, I just find that nothing gets the heart started than uh, my teeny weeny little um, puddle of black. And what I enjoy about it though is, and again, we're, we're going to get onto more important things. But let's start with this. We're recording this early in the morning. We're both drinking coffee, but I'm just enjoying the way you drink coffee because I have got like a regular size coffee here in front of me and like normally it takes me about three sips to get through this regular size where i've seen you taken you've taken at least 18 sips of the world's tiniest coffee like it's just like you're miming drinking coffee there cannot there cannot still be coffee left in that cup with the amount of sips you've taken so far you know what's going to blow your mind it's only started halfway full so, <laughs> um, uh, I don't know what I do, but there are so every ever since we uh, ever since me and Sheridan were together, we've always had our coffee at six o'clock in the morning, and now it's always at six thirty in the morning. But now I just drink I just drink coffee from six thirty until I feel awake. So this is coffee number three, I think, and um, I, I find there are there are a few just. Uh, uh, pure joys. There, there, there are a few things in the world that I love more than just waking up in my own time and just enjoying a coffee. And I don't scull it like you, Anderson. I sit there and I enjoy it. No matter how little, I'm going to sip away at this thing for the next hour just be, just to prove my point. <laughs> All right. So delicious. Um, the pleasures of life is an interesting thing to talk about because let's talk a bit about what's happened in those five years and the most obvious one obviously you know for everybody in the world right now is the idea that we're still in the middle of a global pandemic and you know Australia is slowly coming out of you know a quarantine state but has been in a quarantine state what was that period of time like for you? I learnt quite a lot about myself over the last few months one is that I actually learnt that I miss people (laughs) I miss them um, I spent a lot of time, so from the moment that Rio was done or even especially when the Commonwealth Games were done, I spent my life on the road at just working, just going into rooms of a thousand people and, and by the you know end of the year, I kind of would be exhausted and not want to be around people and people laugh at me and my friends laugh at me about how antisocial I am that I've got this core group of friends and you know I'm the person that goes into a pub and I will find the darkest corner with that group and pull them in and just not leave my place um, over this period of time I have missed the interaction with people um, I remembered the last time that I shook hands was March 13th it was with uh, driver uh, Steve, um, and that day I got home and it felt like just the world fell apart. 
<laughs> the, the next day, I think, it was, yeah, no, it was Friday the thirteenth, um, and Monday the uh, Monday the fifteenth of March. Just everything, all work disappeared. Eight months just in a blink, and it felt like the world. I, I remember it was Friday the thirteenth too, because I absolutely remember this. I was at the Adelaide Fringe Festival, and that was the day they cancelled the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Friday the thirteenth, and I knew as soon as they cancelled the Melbourne Comedy Festival, that meant all my touring for the entire year was basically going to be done and like you I was I remember distinctly Friday the fucking 13th <laughs> it was like just surreal yeah so I yeah I my wife got got uh, let off that day as well and I remember yeah just sitting there and wondering well that, that like I hadn't stopped since I was 13. I went, I, I kind of knew where I was going for so long and I kind of thrived on this constant momentum and, and I don't do bored very well. I don't do nothing very well. Um, and then, yeah, everything just stopped. And then even going down the street, I'm, my community is quite close. I know Newcastle. Um, if, if, when I would go down the street, you would just get such a positive interaction with everybody. Everyone was saying hello. And then over that three weeks, it just turned into cold and everybody was a bit scared. And, you know, like it was just there. It, I, I, I just disliked that period of time I disliked the whole quarantine more than what I could have ever imagined and work-wise you know I, I, I shifted everything over that next three weeks and I came out the other side of quarantine I think doing a doing completely different things to what I was doing on the way into it like so I, I, we figured it out um, but I still and there are, there are positives that I will look back on in, you know, years to come to say that the time that I spent with the kids and these little crazy little things that I did during that period of time. Um, but in general, I'm not a fan of, I'm not a fan of people being scared, community being scared. And it uh, it stung me a bit. And and how do you feel about the general community level when it comes to being scared at the moment because obviously there's the virus but there just seems to be an immense amount of fear in our society in general you know some of it quite founded fears when you talk about you know the black life matters for example protests you know they're based on you know legitimate concerns about deep set problems in our society and and for the people who are in those marginalized communities legitimate fears every day for their safety and their life and their well-being they're real fears the fears around the climate particularly that the younger generation are staring down and you know having to go what is the world that i'm going to look like in you know 10 years 20 years 30 years there's a lot of fear around that i feel like with the internet and the amount of information we're getting and the sensational nature of all the information because it's competing for our eyeballs everything's presented in such a sensational way that also ramps up fear and so many dying old school news models the more that their audience goes to these newer models, the more they rely on what they used to rely on, which was if it bleeds, it leads, you know, create fear, create panic. That's how we sell newspapers or get people to watch the news. I sense fear everywhere at the moment. Do you feel like that's how we're living as a society? Absolutely. And I detest fear. 
I've always just, when I am afraid of something, I run against it. I do it. You know, like it's, it's, it's probably been one of the, one of the driving parts of who I am that if something, if, if something shakes me, I try and head towards it. Um, where at the moment there is fear everywhere. And I, probably for the first time in my life, I've felt fear without the knowledge that there's an exit strategy or there's a, a way to get through it. It's, it's made me, this period of time has made me look at, uh, I always think about the social contract that it's made me reassess my own kind of social contract about how, how everybody's social contract is so completely different than than each other's but we all in in the in the edges of it we all actually have the same one so my one affects yours yours affects the person that's next to you that it all kind of has this overlapping uh, 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 context and my social contract Overall is awesome. There are some bits that I would love to get rid of. The bits that, you know, someone has the ability to kick me out of a, an airline or a pub or, or, you know, a mode of transport because of who I am. That's average. That's a, that's a shit part of the contract that I haven't been able to adjust so far. And, but that part of mine should affect should affect yours as well. And I, I think trying to get our community to realise that there are a big bunch of our community who whose whose contract is shit right now. It's average. That their contract their contract means that when they go into a shop they get doubt about their presence. And we don't like to say this as being, you know, that, that that that's not racism or anything because when we talk about racism, when, when you talk about racism to people that aren't affected by it, it's like this dark cloud that they would have carried around if they're a racist, you know. It's the stain on the soul. They would know if they're a racist, but like when you're discriminated against because of who you are, uh, like me, that, that when somebody discriminates against me because... I'm in a chair. Uh, they don't know that they're doing it. it. It's there's no siren that goes off when that happens, and it's not a dark cloud. It's one interaction that for that person is over, and they walk away. For me, I carry that for the rest of my life. So during this period of time, it's made me realise that you know when you see so many people who are negatively affected by race their contract is affecting mine and yours their contract is shit and maybe though maybe we're going to be able to talk about that a little bit more maybe maybe now there's going to be a bit more truth about that because because i grow up i love this country awesome country it has given me so much but if somebody else's contract is is not right, then mine's a bit shit too. Also, and what you said about loving the country, and I think that this is, you know, something that often is, I don't know, weaponized against people who look for improvements in the country, that somehow that means that you don't like it or love it or appreciate, you know, what you've got from it, you know. Um, no, I think that it's the complete opposite of that. I'm incredibly grateful for the myriad of opportunities that this country and the people of this country have afforded me. And my 
hope for it to be better for everybody and more equal for everybody and for everybody to be able to have opportunity to have that experience is only because I want it to be better. It doesn't mean that I don't appreciate what it has been for me. I would like it to yeah, for everybody to have that same opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, but it's used in a different way by some, I would think, that it's uh, the, this person who wants to change it, they're going to take something away from you and it's just false. Um, so the only fear, I see hope in these protests. I see, I see good will come from the protests. I, I still have the fear of this virus though, which, which wreaked havoc with my life, your life, huge chunks of our country from March, you know, from March 13th and onwards. And it's still there and it can still at some point potentially um, rip our comfort and put fear back in everyone's day-to-day life. We're, we're, we're in one of the most fortunate positions right now that we are, we are, uh, we're, we're down to single digit numbers, potentially almost nationwide daily. Uh, but we're, we're the envy of, you know, the majority of the world, except for Kiwis, those bastards, they do everything so <laughs> bloody good. Um, uh, but it, it, it's still caution that it's there and that it can, it doesn't see justice. It doesn't see right, wrong. It just sees an opportunity and it'll multiply. It's hard because, you know, we are reopening and I think that there is some value in them dipping their toe back in the water to see what that looks like and what shape it can take. But we some people have mistaken that for thinking that it's over and it may not be over our best case scenario is that it is or it is at least manageable in a way and all the things that we put in place will you know continue to manage it but until there's a vaccine until there's a cure for the disease it is never over and you only have to look to other countries and to see how their populations have been decimated and they've not been able to get on top of them to to understand that's true so i think that that's the hard thing about something that goes for this long is that you don't just get one tragedy at a time. And maybe this is something that you can speak about as well, because I think sometimes we have this naive idea that if your house turns burns down in the bushfire, that's your one for the year. But the people whose house burnt down in the bushfires, they also had to deal with the effects of corona, yeah, coronavirus, of COVID, on top of what they were already dealing with. And then, you know, these... Uh, the Black right, uh, the Black Lives Matters protests. These, you know, protests against this inequality around the world are important to have, but unfortunately, they are still happening in the middle of a global pandemic. Both of those things are true at the same time. Yeah. So when it first hit, when it first hit as well, one of my fears, like one of my fears, were how it would play its course during in the develop developing world and how it would so i've still got the i've got this interaction with the school they've got the kurt fernley center in it 75 kids with disabilities in one of the slums in the in the um, um in kenya in the uh, suburbs of nairobi and i i had a i had an interaction with the school in syria back in 2009 i spent some time in it in the in the Yarmouk camp and beautiful kids speaking about getting kids with disabilities into a mainstream school it was just incredible and then the world fell apart in syria and i saw that it just you know it just fell apart we we were getting emails from the the staff saying please help please help and then it just stopped overnight somewhere around 2000 and 
11 or 12, just stopped. And I started to get messages from the from from Ruben Center and it was about, you know, just when we have a have a quarantine, you know, people in people nick all the dunny paper on the shelves in Woolies or Coles or whatever. Their lockdown was that if you go outside you're beaten by police with batons. If you're living on a few dollars a day that you sell you know, seeds and 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 whatever it is on the on the on the street. If that's taken away from it, you don't eat. So my fear was that it's going to just it's going to just decimate communities over there. So far, thankfully, so far, we've been able to increase a, a level of funding and give them a, give the community hope and existence through this period of time. But they don't just have one tragedy. They never have ever. People deal with people deal with exponential amounts of tragedy, and, and I, I think one of the reasons why one of the reasons why I think that there was this panic buying in the weeks before Corona had hit is that we haven't had to deal with that, and this period of time has made us deal with the concept of death, where in the developing world death is prevalent that you deal with death day in day out it's just where it is where in places like australia a death is a tragedy as it always is but it's so i don't know we we, we haven't really had to deal with it on the same basis that they're now still dealing with it in the US. 800 people a day are still dying from this disease. And uh, I think that it really rocked a lot of uh, a lot of this country because it's just so foreign. We don't die from, we die from accidents. We don't die from, you know, things as, as easily accessible as what COVID was and as, as large a scale as what COVID was. Um, so yeah, that it's 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 funny. My my work over in the challenging parts of the world probably equipped me with the knowledge that shit can go bad real quick. So tell me about that work, where it's happening, and and why why it was firstly that you wanted to do it, and what the experiences are like. Uh, the reason why the reason why I wanted to work it's it's. It's almost, I know it's terrible to think, it's bang for your buck that, that if you've got a limited amount of time to go in and create change, you can create a massive amount of change in a limited time frame in countries where purely the existence of people with disabilities into mainstream schools is a foreign concept. So the presence of a person who is a teacher, who is educated, who is a proud person with a disability can create change through presence through through it being the visual presence that you were just landing in a in a in a slum or refugee camp that can that can give so going through a decade of limited time up my sleeve but the desire to still be a teacher or the desire to still work around the education system um that was just uh the 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 most meaningful thing that i could do with the time that i had Hey mate, just give me a second. This is uh, this is great, but um, my dog's just going crazy, so I'm just going to quickly check what's going on. Go for it.
you're in the you're in the COVID nineteen um, black tie pajamas. I love it. Oh mate, yeah, I'm just I'm definitely <laughs> I'm definitely in my pajamas. I have not had a shower. I apologise for that. I've I've just rolled out of bed. I've rolled down to the office. I've got my coffee. Um, I'm still in my trackies slash pajamas. Basically, I've, I've I've discovered that I have a range of clothes. To be honest, which I've been um, yeah easing my way into COVID wear for about the last ten years. To be honest, <laughs> there is a very fine differentiation between what are my day clothes and what are my pajamas. And of what I've noticed in the but in the past, even though they look the same. Like, normally I'd at least put on a fresh pair of clothes, you know, when you get up the next day, even if they still look like pajamas. Whereas what I've found now is yesterday's clothes can be sleeping clothes and then they can just be getting up and being awake in clothes, it turns out. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to go back to a collared shirt. I just... I don't know. Uh, well, I certainly um, it, it might not at this stage fit into any of my Gruen wardrobe, so I might have to <laughs> redress. I was doing a lot of baking, and that seemed like a very productive thing to be doing with your time. But the problem is that my partner, she doesn't really like sweet stuff. So what I found was I was not only doing a lot of baking, but I was also doing a lot of eating the things that I have baked. So I've got to, st- I've got to stop oh baking God. just so I can stop eating. <laughs> I've probably trained more in the last... Uh, three months than I have for th- for two years at least. Uh, I think that again, when life fell apart, I was like, "Well, fuck it, I'm going for a run," you know. Like, and thank God we were in a part of the world that we were still able to do that during our our, our uh, quarantining. But yeah, it was uh, it was some. It was almost like an old comfortable glove that I went back to. Um, so you were telling me about the school. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but uh, I had a dog emergency and I was doing the the, the right thing by my, uh, you know, yep. constant companions who also, I'll tell you what, the dogs are going to struggle when it is that we have to go back to work because they have loved the 24-hour day attention. In fact, yes, she wants to come into the office now and be part of the podcast. <laughs> so I'm gonna open the door. From memory... From memory, she was part of the podcast last time. Oh, that's probably right. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yes, she, she was. She eventually hears me talking and is like, what's going on in the office? Can <laughs> I come and be part of that? So that has now happened. So Ramona's here. <laughs> Winnie will still be in bed. She, she's a bit more sensible, but Ramona's here. Um, no, okay. I think it was so just Ramona last time you as t- well. But uh, You were telling me about the schools, yes. Bang for your buck. The school was, uh, we found it, I was working in an NGO that was um, sending volunteers and teachers abroad, occupational therapists, and we found a school that um, was, uh, we had already worked with the school in in Syria, in Yamuk. Then we found a school that also wanted to engage with the community of people with disabilities, bring them into a, a mainstream school. So I just, I, while I was uh while I was racing, I would just disappear from a team that we were competing in in Europe and I would not even tell people where I was going. I would I would just jump on a flight and land in Nairobi and go check out what they were doing. And this one I found was just, it's the Rubin Centre. Like if, if you can't engage with what they do, it's incredible. It's like a, it's a little paradise in the, in the slum over there. And I would go in there and he, the principal, um, uh, Brother Frank, O'Shea wanted to engage with the community, people with disabilities, bring them into the uh, the, the 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 school. Um, he asked whether or not he could create it in my name at the Kurt Fernley Centre, and now I've just been going back every chance that I uh, I can. I was meant to spend 
a week there again in April, but unfortunately everything at the world fell apart. Um, but thankfully over there, the thing that was hurting that school, the thing that was hurting the community was, was, was they were worried that they wouldn't be able to f feed the kids, the feed, the families. So, you know, a quarantine or a lockdown over here means that we have access to job seeker, job keeper. We have access to, you know, government stimulus. A lockdown in the developing world means that you have nothing. Um, but thankfully, we were able to step in during that period of time. A few generous donors were able to support the school with, uh, with, with, um, with food. So now, well, during that, uh, during that period, it was nervous, but I feel like I'm quietly, uh, quietly confident that the school and the kids will be there on the other side of this thing. But, uh, you know, the reason to do it is because I was the beneficiary of great teachers. I was the beneficiary of a community that gave me access to sport, education, uh, ahead of my time. And, that education and being able to interact with your non-disabled peers, that is life-altering. That is powerful. That is more than a mobility aid, more than an access to a wheelchair. The feeling that you are valued is powerful and I need to play a part in giving that giving that experience to other people yeah so that's what i was going to ask because i was going to say are the challenges unique in the developing world to you know first world challenges are, uh, or is i guess you've answered it in a little which is because i was you know in my head i immediately went to of course the mechanics of it i'm thinking about in the de developing world the access to technology to you know buildings that have been you know purpose-built to you know facilitate you know like people with disabilities like all these sorts of things like but of course you you've gone to uh, you know to the heart of what you're talking about which is that accessibility to you know so talk to me a little more even about that because i think that is you know counterintuitive but makes complete sense when you say it but yeah. was counterintuitive to what my initial thought process so was. a lot of people will go into a uh, 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 place where hardship is is pretty full-on for people with disabilities so two-thirds of the world who require a wheelchair will never see one but more important than that wheelchair is access to community and, and, and acceptance into community. So I don't, people may fly in and give wheelchairs and walk away. The wheelchair is, is, is 1% of the conversation. You know, I don't care whether a child crawls up to my school or is carried by mum, which the majority of them are, and then given access to it. That is the most important thing. Pushing, hobbling, carried, as long as they come into the gates of that school and feel as if they are wearing a school uniform with their non-disabled peers, that's, that's hands down the most important thing that we need to get over. And that means that we need to convince those who are in the education system, those who are uh, creating um, either, either funded through NGOs or governments, we need to make sure that regardless of how disability is funded in community, we need them in the school. So don't just, <laughs> it's one of those things that if you are in, in foreign aid, don't just drop in wheelchairs and walk away. Before you drop in a wheelchair, you know, 
I've, I've, I've landed in these slums and the best way for me to move around is I, I have to crawl into them to find the kid. And then I go into a house and that kid is sitting in the corner, you know, that kid is sitting in the corner where they've got a, they've got a bucket and that's their toilet and, and, and that's their life in there. So before we drop a wheelchair into this kid, that the wheelchair will be useless because I'm pretty handy at using a wheelchair, but it's no good for me in there. We need to drop in there and convince family and neighbours and teachers that this person needs access and needs to be able to go outside without shame. So uh, my, my, my take on the whole uh, experience of, of living with a disability in that challenging environment is that we need just more visual access around people with disabilities and we need education, 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 however that looks like. Not education in a segregated setting. We need the kids. Then you encourage people with disabilities to, or non-disabled, your peers, to walk by this segregated setting and almost wipe their hands and think, we're done. We need them to see education with community so that there's never an I'm done. There's just, we're figuring it out together. So that idea of, you know, people having, you know, and you've written about this, you've spoken about this before, and I think we spoke about it last time, which was the incredible support that you got from your community you know, and perhaps not in the organised fashion that you're trying to organise it for these communities, but just out of an instinctive sense of community, you know, that where you were from and the people that you were surrounded by, there were people who stepped up in those situations and said no, you know, Mm -hmm. started at your family, went out into your community. The idea that you appreciate that, but then your response to that is to want to do that for other people. Was that always something that was the logical next step of that because there's two real approaches you tend to find there's one person who says somebody has done me a kindness in my life and i will try to repay them that kindness and then there's another sort of person who said someone has done me a kindness in my life the person who did me the kindness they don't really need me to repay the kindness they just need me to thank them for the kindness they need me to show that kindness for somebody else when they need that kindness and they're two, you know, they both are nice approaches, but it seems like you've taken that second one, which is, you know, thanking the people by, you know, living the way that they lived, you know, the example that they lived. Was that always something that you planned to do? Did you come to that decision naturally? Was there a moment of revelation that the best way to pay back, you know, the kindness you had been shown was to show that same kindness for others? Uh, I think it it just fell into life naturally that, I always thought in sport that I could thank people in my sport a thousand times. I could buy them a a gift or I could just go out there and nail that sport for as long as I can. And it's the same with the community. I could thank my community a thousand times or I could try and create and replicate that community as much and and, and as far as I possibly can. Um, and, And it's also when you think about kindness, there's good and bad kindness. So I've received the good kindness. I've received the kindness where my principal would rebel against the Department of Education and demand that I would get a mainstream education. When my mum and dad were told that I'd be segregated, isolated, he he would 
walk into my mum and dad's house and say, ignore the Department of Education, ignore my boss because Kurt deserves to be at this school. But I've received the bad kindness as well, you know, the kindness where you're not, you know, you're not financially, we weren't very well off, where people would drop a wheelchair at our house and it'd be useless and make me feel useless. I received the kindness and it sounds weird, but sitting in a street, and somebody putting 10 bucks in my pocket, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and that, that feeling is shit. Like that is, um, the last time it happened, I'm a grown fucking, I'm a grown man, you know? Like, and I was over in, um, I was over in, um, where was I? I think it was a gold market in Dubai. And just these these guys went by and put 50 in my pocket. Now, I, I admit, I kept it and brought breakfast. <laughs> but, but, might as well. But, if you've, if you've been insulted, you might as well at least be full. But, but a little girl, a little girl was also is a, a friend of mine. She was given money just the other day and she's high need cerebral palsy. And she, uh, her mum tried to run and give it back to him and then she's worried about her daughter who's there just not knowing and, and although she may not be able to communicate on the spot, she's able to speak via Facebook and social media and she was broken that somebody would walk by her and, and see her and give her a level of, of pity and that's not kindness. That's, that's, that's degrading, um, so th- there are good kindness and bad kindness and I try and make sure that I replicate the good one to make sure that when I'm when I'm interacting with the world with people in the developing world especially or anywhere around disability they are not the recipient of 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 you know anything other than justice you know like they are my family and I'm there because I love who they are and I love who they can be uh, so take me back to five years ago then. So you're, you know, you, last time we spoke, uh, very different time of your life, as you said, the last time that you're going to be super focused as, you know, the world-class athlete that you had been and, you know, had become known. I mean, the reason that you've had this opportunity to do these things was because first and foremost, you excelled you know, in this sporting arena and then you use that opportunity to, you know, broaden out and speak for others and provide these opportunities and have this next part of your career. So you're in this race, you know, you've always been one of the the greatest, fiercest competitors in the world. One of the great secrets of your success is that you just don't give up no matter what the circumstance. And, you know, you hear it in your mind, 150 from the end, you think maybe I don't need this in the way that I used to need this anymore. And um, if this question seems like it's really long, the connection on our Skype seemed to be going in and out a little bit. So I thought I'd just keep talking in the question so that you get the most of the gist. And I was hoping the connection would come back by the end of the question. So it seems like it has. It has. So this is the good news. Um, Take me from that moment. You said you raced still for another couple of years after that. what was did it change the way you raced and the way that you competed had you gone in those last couple of years of competing from one type of competition to playing a different role in your sport or was it you know did, i guess what i'm asking is was there a sense of okay 
I don't have this ruthless desire to necessarily be the best and that's not how I'm going to define myself anymore, but I am going to continue racing for other reasons or did you continue racing because you just didn't know how to stop yet? <laughs> why, why was it that you kept going on? So it was... It wasn't a maybe I don't have it. It was definitely an absolute. Like it was, Mm. you do not need this. You do not need the win. It didn't take away from the love. So I still still loved racing and loved my community, but it just, you do not need the win. Um, Taking that away though, it was the hardest two years. The the following two years were the hardest two years that I've ever had. Uh, They were... The the reason why I raced in the Gold Coast and um, the Commonwealth Games and would would win that gold medal and just such an incredible moment and the reason why it was such an incredible moment was five months before that you'd just you know the reason why I kept going after Rio was the thought of racing in front of my friends and family for my final my final time in the green and gold, it was just too much. Regardless of whether or not you need that win, you have to have that moment. And I'd been a part of the Com game since we won. I did the final speech when we won the bid to get the games in the Gold Coast. Uh, the, the talking about this whole uh, winning the Gold Coast was about equality and about making sure that people with disabilities were held in equal regard with their able-bodied peers. Like it was just, I was, a, I was on board this, this, this thing, this event. And, and but training-wise, it was tough, Um it was the first time that I was going to training and I think it was just before Christmas of 2017. I went to train with my coach, Dorsey. He's coached me since I was 14 years old. I got there and I just said, I don't want to be here anymore. And I pushed away and I just got home that morning and I got out of my racing wheelchair and I didn't want to do it anymore. I just stopped. And I recognized that something was wrong and I, it was the first time that I just called, called, you know, my coach called, um, the Institute of Sport and just said, I need to talk to someone. I'm not right. You know? And, and I got onto, uh, she's, she, her name is Fiona, a sports site. And we turned up at the track to have a talk the next day, I think. And, she sat down with me and said, how you feeling? I said, I don't even know, <laughs> you know, I just don't even know. And she goes, well, what is, well, what do you want? And I said, I know that I want to go to Gold Coast. I want to go to, I want to go to these games. They're six months away. I'm, you know, there's so much attached to it and I'm athlete ambassador and all of this sort of stuff. I want to be there, but I, I just can't. <laughs> and she said, you know that you're good at what you do, don't you? And I say, yeah. No, Kurt. You know that you are fucking brilliant at this thing. And I went, yeah. She goes, Kurt, you are fucking brilliant. Regardless of the result, you are fucking brilliant. Now just go out there tomorrow and show yourself how brilliant you are and tell yourself that you are, you are good at this thing 
and really it was it was like a there was just I was so overwhelmed the overwhelmed desire to win wasn't there so I needed to go back to you know the the process and then it was all about she's like just uh, remind yourself of of why you started racing wheelchairs you know like so it's it's the story of the older athlete that when the win when that absolute just aggressive desire drops off you go back to why you did it and why you did it was because you love it and you wanted to see how strong you could be and you wanted to see how fast you could be you enjoyed each you know part of each session and and sometimes just reminding you to 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 forget about all of the stresses just go back to that basic desire and love and it really helped and i um i found that last six months it kind of put me back in a headspace to leave the sport loving it and to leave the sport with it having a a really good impact in my life and if I would have left the day without talking to Fiona if I would have not got back into the chair I would have I would have had a negative taste in my mouth about that that sport potentially for the rest of my life but now although it feels like that part of my life is dead and buried like it's finished it's a lifetime ago I have such positive emotions to it and to have went from that place of not even wanting to look at my wheelchair six months before uh, and then winning in the Gold Coast with an entire country just buying into the, the journey that I had, it was incredible. And I did that without that absolute desire to win. I did that with a desire to enjoy each moment so i'm fascinated because they say that um you know professional athletes experience two deaths and it feels like a trite thing to say when we've been talking about actual death but you know for the sake of this conversation the the saying goes that professional athletes experience two deaths because you experience the death of your sporting career at quite a young age mostly for people you know most professional athletes you've still got a fair bit of your life still to go when the thing that has defined you for so long and you've focused on for so long is suddenly gone in those two years were you also making sure that you had everything in place so that when you transitioned out of it you were ready to go to do something else or had you planned to um you know take uh, you know, a break and work out what that was. Uh, when did that, you know, transition into what my life is going to be post, you know, athlete? And I mean, I I know you and I think most people probably have an understanding of that, you know, obviously, you know, uh, your sport, the highest paid sport in the world. You are that. <laughs> <laughs> you've clearly only been doing that exclusively uh, for the entire time you've been an athlete. We all know that that is absolutely the case. But no, of course, I know that you've had, you know, a lot of other things going on, you know, during that time out of necessity, but out of, you know, desire as well uh, in your life. But was there a moment where you're like, well, now this is gone I have to find a new focus for what it is that I'm going to do with my life. The reason why the voice said that you don't need this anymore, you don't need the win anymore, was because I was I had enough 
on the other side of the life. That's how I see it anyway, that, that family, work, the enjoyment factor had moved, that I had enough going on on the outside that I didn't need it. You know, like it's in uh, what 2016, Harry was two years old. And it's one of those things that you're going in that last 200 meters. I saw Harry and I didn't need to win for him. I didn't need to win at all. I, I was comfy that the, there was so much going on and, and I, I moved on with my life. Um, but we did plan to, we did plan to take six months after the games in the, in Gold Coast to, to disappear. And then when the Gold Coast games finished, you have these ideas that when sport's done, the moment that you take off the green and gold, the phone stops calling. You know, the, you know, you, it's 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 in reflection. It, it was a fairy tale that I thought that the moment that I would stop, the emails would stop coming in, the the phone would stop ringing, so I would disappear with my family for six months and come out the other side completely different. You know. Um, but then the moment that I put down the green and gold, the phone calls tripled, the emails tripled. Well, that was that was really that was really your own fault as well, though, mate. I mean, you know, you did finish <laughs> your career with the most memorable and iconic, you know, moment from the entire Commonwealth Games. So if you'd wanted a little free time, you could have come third, and maybe the phone wouldn't have rang as much. <laughs> Yeah, but for me, for me, that moment was more, that was my thank you to everyone. You know, that was my, I, I that was the perfect race. My, one of, so I think of four races in my career that are perfect. That one, Gold Coast Marathon, perfect. Average heart rate, 195 beats per minute, uh, maxed out at 211 beats per minute. I buried myself for for my own peace of mind and, you know, all intrinsic reasons. And happily, you know, I was given the, the privilege of, of carrying the, the flag into the Commonwealth, into the closing ceremony, kind of carrying it into the closing <laughs> ceremony. And, uh, like, it was massive. But I, I thought that that was, that was like a combined, okay, guys, thanks and and we're done you know you know you just you think that it's almost that's the that's the finish line and then everybody just turns away and and moves on but it didn't and life escalated and again sport is not the most financial uh my sports were not signed a million dollar contracts but uh, then then really the years that followed from 2018 they were they were really financially lucrative and you know building up a public speaking uh, uh profile that we had too much that we couldn't handle the amount of work that was coming in but i you know like the, the who i am you kind of you figure it out along the way you say you say yes to 10 times as much stuff as what you should and then you figure out how to get through it at that period of time right up to March 13, <laughs> where I was still overwhelmed, incredibly overwhelmed. And that feeling of overwhelmed had been a constant feeling for two straight years. Um, and then, yeah, and then she switched off. Um, and I would say that now 
now has made during this period has has kicked me in the bum to think about what the next few years think about look like really um and thankfully it's i've i've kind of yeah thankfully i've been able to just land on my feet so now sport's been taken away it was filled up through working with businesses around culture and, you know, the rooms of 500 people and more, the, the one, one hour kind of presentation. And then that's taken away. And now it's like, well, shit, what's, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and wait for the exit of this. I'm going to create something that exists during this. And there's been a couple of TV shows that I've started to do some work in but it all everything works in I know that my life will be around disability and telling stories and making sure that we you know a a mixture of both and making sure that I continue to work around that people with disabilities as many as they we can get get to experience the same life that I experienced in my childhood yeah, so I would say that I haven't had to think about the loss of I haven't had to think about the creation of a new life because until until March 13. What was your um, main message? I, I, not main message necessarily, but when you speak to people, and I imagine that a lot of the time when you're speaking to people, you know, they want to hear both your story, but they're often, I imagine, at events where they're looking for some sort of insight that they can take into their community, into their business, into their own lives. What is the insight that you hope people walk away from when they hear you speak? Well, like, I think that when we kind of touched on it, what I desire to get across and what's received are sometimes two completely different things. I've been a stand-up comedian yeah. for 25 years, mate. That's the one thing you don't need to tell me. <laughs> you have no idea. Yeah, exactly. Like, so I do a, do a gig and I think that it's going towards that direction and someone will come up and say something completely different. But if I could leave an audience with one thing whenever I speak, it is... I think we spoke about the alternative to it in the beginning when it comes to the social contract that we don't we don't know when we're wrecking someone's social contract. We don't there's no alarm when we are messing with someone's social contract around discrimination or racial profiling or whatever that may be. We also have no ability to know how we're changing somebody's life in a positive way. My teacher who he rebelled against his employer. He didn't get a gold medal or fireworks or or a, a siren that went off that when he walked into my mum and dad's house and told them that I was deserving of an education through Carcourt Public. He, he did it anyway. But the repercussions of that one interaction, that would change my life in ways that he would have no idea and I would have no idea until 30 years later and a strong, independent, resilient person who felt the value of their community has been able to bounce across the world. So if I'm able to have given one thing to one person, it's that they encourage them that every interaction that they have on a day-to-day basis has the ability to change someone's world. 
So why not try and make those interactions, whether it's with a, a staff member or, or a kid at school if you're a teacher or if it's with a, an NGO or if you're an occupational therapist with your, with your um, consumer or person with a disability in front of you, be the person that tries to make that interaction the most powerful interaction in that person's life so that they leave that moment leave that moment knowing that there are there are possibilities at the end of it uh it's amazing when you think about it because you're absolutely right you know your teacher who who fought for what he just believed was the right thing you know he believed that you should have access to the same thing that everybody else did and he was willing to you know actually fight for it not just say it but actually fight for it he believed in that and I bet, is he still with us or is he, is that, is the timeline on that? He is. I mean, the idea that he believed in that back then, and that's not only resulted in you being able to have the opportunities you've had, but now a bunch of kids in places that never would have had those same opportunities are going to get access to those opportunities. It must be incredibly, you know, pleasing for someone who has dedicated their life to that sort of work and those sort of principles to see the fruits that have been born of the seeds that they planted. So I'm glad that uh, they're around to actually see that and, and understand that. And I bet it makes them extremely proud when they give themselves a moment to actually reflect on that. So it's a very nice thing, my friend. Honestly, the response is usually, oh, Kurt, stop stop talking about it. Yeah. Stop giving me praise. <laughs> I just did what I had to do. Of course I was going to. You were a little boy who deserved, uh, you know, who deserved to be one of my students. Um, but that in itself is worth talking about. Uh, I can't remember when we spoke last time. If I was a more professional podcaster, Kurt, I would have gone back and listened to the episode. <laughs> but it's not an insult to you. It's an insult to me. I don't like listening to myself. Uh, and uh, I certainly don't want to go back in a time machine and listen to myself when I didn't know what I was doing on this podcast. Because even now <laughs> that I do know what I'm doing, I don't want to listen to it. So um, uh, I, I like to ask people about their greatest strengths and their greatest weaknesses or what they perceive them to be. Um, give me two sets. I'd like your greatest strength and your greatest weakness as an athlete, but then I'd like your greatest strength and your greatest uh, weakness as a you know that does not have to do with you as an athlete. My greatest strength as an athlete was that I could shut down the world for periods of time and just create, almost create a person and a persona and a body that could be the absolute best in the world. There was this knowledge that although it was challenging in that last six months and I needed additional help to get into that space, I could could just rip parts of me away (laughs) to make myself stronger. Um, That was probably, that's probably, I'll jump, that's probably one of my weaknesses in life that that when I get to a point that's uncomfortable I will uh, all that shit starts falling around I will shut down and try and do it all myself and you know you need to remind yourself that the reason you've got here is because you've been able to share and people have assisted so you know you can't you can't just shut it down and, you know, not leave the room until you figure a way through it. You can actually, you know, talk about it and and, and work with people. Um, my greatest weakness as an athlete 
I was a pretty good athlete. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's the pause that I've, I've met a, a lot of good athletes in my time. And whenever you ask them what their greatest weakness as an athlete is, like it's almost like they've never even occurred to them that they might have a weakness as an athlete. It's <laughs> like you had that same look on your face just then of like, I'm trying to think of something, but I can't. Did you see me, mate? I was really bloody good. I didn't have a lot I of weakness. pretty good. <laughs> One of them, one of them as an athlete, it's also, it was a great strength is that I could line up against, you know, my best mate in the world and he was my enemy. And just, you would just look at him. It wasn't a person, it was a uniform, but that's also a bit of a weakness. Like, um, but I would say it's trivial things like. I loved, uh, I struggled with the discipline around food. Like, you know, like when it would come to that last month and you would have to shut down food, that was a punish. Like that was, that was just hard work. You know, I, I love my Tucker and the thought of, the thought of the just real discipline, but usually I did it. I just, I didn't like it. Um, but yeah, probably actually no. The, the 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 weakness as an athlete was that when I was racing, that person that I created was a bit of an asshole. Um, like I'm, I don't want to be that person anymore. And you know, like you were just so ultra competitive that nothing else existed outside of that result. And you know, like I just. I just even in the months in the leading up to it, I was a, sh- I was a shit partner, <laughs> you know, like I was, I was a shit, you know, you, you weren't a great dad because you were buggered all the time. You weren't a good partner because you were just putting every part of yourself selfishly, which I, I you know, I, I believe you, you kind of had to do to get those final incremental gains, but you were putting everything into it to create this person including you were putting other people's parts of other people's life into it as well if you could uh, take any skill from anybody in the world so it can be any skill it can be like you know a physical skill it could be a mental skill it could be capacity to entertain in some way it can be you know the the capacity to rebuild an engine and put a car together i don't really mind what the skill is but is there a particular skill that you would love if there was a magic wand that you could just have you don't need to learn how to do it you don't need to go to a course and it's just this is literally a scenario where tap on the shoulder you suddenly have this ability what would it be well yeah i'd love to build a shit i'd like to do it I would love to build a car for sure. That would be, that would be awesome. But if I could, if I could, if I could be better, if I could be better at swaying people towards buying into, if I could sway people better towards buying in towards that debate around equality, I would, I would love that. You know, like I would love to be better at that. To be able to give, to be able to be given twenty minutes and be better at, and it is a skill. Uh, Obama was a, he was just so such a good orator that he could he could talk about a topic and bring people with him and not everyone. Um, but if I could be better at that, you know, I would I would love it. I would love it. Uh, okay. Uh, our connection is getting a little bit more poor, so I'm going to finish this up even though that I could talk to you all day. Um, uh, 
thank you so much, personally, for taking the time to do this. I do want to tell people a little bit about how this happened because we were just exchanging messages on Twitter, just having a little chat about life or whatever. And then you spoke to me about the fact that you had uh, you were, you had stopped doing your podcast for a little while. Can we uh, talk about that for a second? Because let's talk about your podcast. And uh, are you back doing it or have you given it, put it on pause for a minute? I have, man. I've started going back to it. So I I tried to do it. I tried to do it when lockdown, when it first happened. And like, again, when 90% of life falls over, you're like, all right, I'm going to, um, I'm going to run out and do more episodes and engage more online and keep that energy going. And then I made the first call over Zoom and I've just went, this is hard. <laughs> and also, I don't think I was in the space to have those really fun, positive, enjoyable conversations as well. So I, 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 I kind of even, I've reached out to a few people and I'm like, how are you doing it? And what are you doing? And then I, um, I tried it and I just went, this is rubbish. This is, this is shit house. <laughs> and, uh, and now that I feel that there is a bit more optimism going, I have started sitting down with people in the same room and, and talking and I miss that. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm pumped to get that going again, because if, if I was given the chance to be able to run a marathon tomorrow and go well at it, or sit down and have a yarn with someone for an hour about life. And my podcast is Tiny Island, and I speak about what it is to be an Australian and and people's passions and, and, and who we are. And I find that conversation often gets hijacked by – it gets hijacked by people who – want to utilize it for their own gain that someone will get up and tell you this is what it is to be an Australian and when someone tells you that that there's a reason they're they're doing it for a reason there's 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 gain for them in some way but sitting down and talking with 100 people 200 people with farmers and teachers and and comedians when we're when we're in the same when we're in the same city <laughs> but comedians about who they are the the passions that they 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 have how they've got to where they are and who we are as a country and the good and the bad i i i think that we need to have those conversations more often or else they'll just continually be hijacked by those that are using it for personal gain. So that's where the the podcast was born out of. Um, and yeah, when when uh, when everything went down, I just thought I can't I can't do it during this period of time. But thankfully, I'm starting to get up and running again, and and I've missed it. Did you did you see Mark Mark Moran, the WTF podcast? Mark Moran. Mark Moran. He he lost his partner recently. That's right. Yep. Did you hear his episode where he spoke about that? I did. Yes. Um, I so I know Mark not well, but like he's he's done this podcast. He's a he, he was on the podcast after you though, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't, in fact, he said wouldn't have done it if Kurt hadn't already. Done. Of course, I think it was of what course. he actually said at the time. But no, I've um, I know Mark a little. I know Mark to you know say hello and have a chat backstage at a show or something like that. But I've been a obviously you know this podcast probably wouldn't exist without Mark's podcast existing in the first place and podcasts like Mark's podcast. You know there wouldn't have been the capacity in this forum to do these sort of shows and so. 
that show and he uh you know people that i have you know great affection for and um it, it's to for him to have clearly lost somebody that he had found you know immediate comfort and happiness and support with uh you know so soon into their i mean it's tragic in any circumstance but so soon into them you know finding something that was genuinely making them both so happy was you know a great tragedy and um so say what you were going to say sorry his ability to grieve openly on his podcast to share his emotional state at that period of time his relationship that he conveyed to his audience is the reason why i love podcasting and you give of yourself in your podcast are you you i i hear when you when you speak and and you give and i'm banging the microphone but you you have a relationship with that audience as well and i think i love that i love that this medium creates this audience that have to actually actively seek you out and download you and have that level of engagement. But then, you know, Mark, the way that he openly grieved on his podcast just made me fall in love with this medium even more that that, that relationship with that medium, with that podcast is, um, is something that I, I want to emulate that you can be real, that you can have these real emotions and share with other people lessons and life experiences. And, um, yeah, it just, that for me is, is why I love it. And that's, that's why I'll keep knocking out the podcast. Uh, when it comes to Australia, we are finishing up, but I'm, I, you know, I'm enjoying talking to you and I don't want it to be over. It's nearly over. So, um, when it comes to Australia, uh, it is interesting to me because I do see, uh, yeah, a great disparity uh, between how we are represented. I, th- I feel like there has become a meanness in the way that politics is played. And as you said, the, the idea of identity has been used and weaponized. And often, you know, somebody's you know, trying to sell you something or convince you of something. But when you meet ordinary people... I mean, everyday people, I, I mean, ordinary in the nicest sense of that word, you know, day to day in my interactions with human beings, regardless of political persuasion or any of these things, I mostly meet nice people. Now, maybe I'm naive, but it feels to me that most of the people that, you know, live in this country, you know, understand that we've been incredibly lucky to be born in a place that has such immense natural resources and like a great social system. Don't get me wrong. So many fucking holes in it and so many ways that it could be improved. And for marginalised communities, they'd be saying, well, that's a very nice way of you looking at Australia, Will, but, you know, you're a white middle class, you know, you know, middle-aged man, you know, growing up in a system that was, you know, set to... Um, you know, reward you at every stage or at least, you know, endorse the idea that you could be successful here. But in a general sense, when I talk to everyday Australians, there is a sense of, you know, the lucky country was originally meant to be an insult. That's actually what it was meant to be. But that most of us felt lucky to be here. But the way that it's played out in the media narrative and the political narrative is a that it, it's a sense of entitlement, entitlement and meanness, a sense of we deserve this and now we need to protect the good stuff that we have rather than feel grateful that we have, you know, through no particular good planning of our own, been lucky enough to be born in the right postcode. So 
just speak to me a little about like if you think there is a big gap have we got Mina or are we just being portrayed as being Mina what's your experience of this I think it just depends it depends on your experience with Australia it depends on you can be born five minutes from somebody and have a completely different interaction with every part of this community and it have changed in completely different ways over a period of time but we all need to hear more about that you know, like uh, there was a, a, a young girl on my on my podcast, and uh, in uh, she was born out at uh, out at Gilgandra, just a couple of hours away from where I grew up. In her experience with a small community was chalk and cheese to my experience with community. Uh, I grew up thinking that I am in the greatest place on earth because. I had a community that that banged down doors for me. Um, Tila grew up not even feeling like she is an Australian. She grew up with a community where the coppers drive by my house, I go out and say hello. The coppers drive by her house, her mum says hide. So how do you, how do you, and and for me, uh, that that was a bit of a, during that conversation, it's a bit of an awakening moment where that's where I started to really think about that, that conflict of social contract and that mine, that he was, her interaction with community, it affects mine. It devalues my contract as well. Um, and if I am able to do anything to be able to increase that contract, my contract increases in value as well. My contract becomes better. Doesn't take away at all. It builds. It builds it. Um the progression over time, I don't know about you, but I can't go on social media for longer than a couple of minutes nowadays. Uh, if people looked at my contribution to things like Twitter over this last probably four months, it's gone down to zero because that's a war zone sometimes. And over the last few periods of after the last few periods, I follow people that I work in the same industry at, but I also follow someone who jumps online and abuses me about something, hoping, hoping that I will see a different part of their presence that I can go, okay, there's a bit of, there's a bit of, there's a bit of light there, you know, like there's a bit of, there's a bit of common ground there, but that has meant that my social media, especially over this period of time, has just been chaos. So um, if I was to read life and think of social medias as real, I would believe that we're falling apart. But my experience with every interaction, every day of the week, conflicts that. My experience with life... When I experience, when I walk down the street, when I talk to people on the podcast, when I travel around to everywhere, it's not falling apart yet. So I have to believe, I have to believe that that's that that social media, the war zone, is not real. I have to, and that keep tinkering around the edges, supporting those who are tinkering around the edges with their experience. And let's just see this keep, keep rolling. But yeah, for me over this last six months, I just, I've had to really reduce my, my online presence because that shit ain't healthy. (laughs) 
Um, mate, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, did I ask the time machine question last time? I'm asking it again anyway, but I might not have got to ask you. I don't think it had been in the podcast at that point. So this is a regular question I now ask, which is I have a time machine. I have a one-way round trip. Uh, you can go to any point in your life, observe or change, or you can just go to any point in history. Or you know what? You can go to the future if you like as well. It's a time machine. It's one return trip. Uh, you don't have to affect things. You can just observe things or you can try to affect things. Here's what I will say. You don't need to go and kill baby Hitler or stop a war. <laughs> I'm gonna, I have a time machine and I'm going to send back more qualified people to do that. If I'm going to send back someone to kill baby Hitler, <laughs> hey, I'm saying you're capable of doing anything, mate. I'm not suggesting that you're not. But I'm just saying if I was sending someone back to kill baby Hitler, it would not be you. I don't feel like you would have the... <laughs> have it in you to kill a baby anyway so it doesn't have to be those things it can be something that is personal to you yep uh i i would go i would go back to that conversation with my mum and dad i would avoid them i would avoid them i would avoid me but i would go back to my teacher mrs masters and mr lom on the moment that they invited me into the school in the moment that they're cementing Kako public and i would go back there and i would hug the hell out of them and i would let them know at that point in time that you have just changed my world because they were no matter how much i say it now they won't believe the power there but if i pop up the moment that they leave my mum and dad and i just go you just fucking changed my life. Here's your, here's the siren that you deserved. Um, here's the, here's the hug that you should have got. Here's the, here's that metal moment that you, you just, you were worthy of. I would do that. And I feel, I feel like a, it, it just would be fitting. It would be perfect. Um, and they, everyone who does those moments, they are deserving of that. They are deserving on the immediate feedback to go, hey, you just did it. You did it now. Um, and I wish I could give it to them. But the, the, the time machine as well, I could go back and the first time that I did this podcast, in between recording it and it coming out, I was shitting myself, nervous as, because... Again, I love the idea that you can share so much over a period of time, but I think it was at that, I just wrote my book during the period of time of writing the book and then receiving all of this emotion from people for sharing that story. And then you share it again on the podcast and you're like, oh my God, have I, what have I said during that period of time? Did I share too much? And I remember it coming out January 26th it came out and I did listen to it straight away and I'd had a few beers because it's Australia day and I race and celebrate, like I celebrate the race, the Day 10 K and um, I downloaded it immediately because I was nervous and um, then just the warmth response that you got, you got, I got from people after that, you know, I'd also go back and just say, chill the fuck out and enjoy the day, Kurt. <laughs> don't, uh, yeah, don't get caught up on those, on those little things. Um, but yeah, man, uh, yeah. And again, 
Thank you for what you've done with podcasting because you've done pretty well. Uh, thanks, man. Uh, so it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. I promise when we have an opportunity to be face-to-face, we will do your podcast. I can't Matt. believe that I've snuck in and I've cheekily <laughs> stolen a second one before you got your first one. I feel a little bit bad, but not that bad because I love talking to you and I think people are really going to dig this episode. Anytime, buddy. And I will. When I, I'm going to chase you down. You're going you're gonna to start touring at some point and I'm just going to sit at the door or at the stage door and not let you in till we're done. But look, I, I promise, it, mate. I promise we will, we will definitely get this done. Certainly you would be able to chase me down. You're a world-class athlete and I have bad hips. So <laughs> The form's a little bit off though, Edison. I reckon we're, we're going to be a bit closer than what we once were. Um, thank you, mate.